listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I'm exhausted. My wife is home in bed. My children are home in bed, and they should be. We drove for 14 hours and 38 minutes. We arrived at 5.38 this morning. I got 90 minutes of sleep. So my wife's home in bed now. My boys are home in bed now. I'm going to be home sleeping this afternoon, so don't you dare text or call me because I'm going to be sleeping. Wasn't supposed to be that way. We were down in Atlanta, got some personal time with a man whom I really respect, and you should too, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. We got several hours with him on one-on-one time. He's going to be coming here and speaking at Grace Fellowship. If you're not familiar with him, rzim.org. Going to be coming here to Grace Fellowship live speaking. We got some time with him, and then because he's uh, around the Atlanta area, we also saw Ebenezer Baptist Church, home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., saw his burial site and the pulpit where he preached from. Absolutely mind-blowing, vision-casting time this week. Well, when we went to get on our flight yesterday, we happened to have a little bit of difficulty with security. We didn't have the problem with security, but the other three million people that were in line had a problem with security, the TSA agents, if you know what I'm saying. We were there almost two hours before the flight. We needed to be there probably three hours because this line was so ridiculously long. And then by the time we made it to our flight, we had one of those customer service representatives who didn't know too much about service. And they closed the doors on the plane before it was time to close those doors, and we did not make it onto that plane. The problem, which seemed to be a simple one to solve, is that they didn't have another flight leaving until today at 11 o'clock. Now, if I'm leaving from Atlanta, you can do the math, at 11 o'clock on Sunday, and we have services at 9 and 1045, It's not possible for me to be here live and in person. And there's no way that I'm going to miss out on being here with all of you on this particular day or any day if it's within my ability to be here. So we went to plan B, get a rental car. So we went from agency to agency to agency to agency and got turned down repeatedly because there were multiple conferences in Atlanta and all of the rental cars were taken all of the rental cars except one. I called up a a rental car agency that Captain James T. Kirk would be very fond of. (laughs) Don't want to use any names here. And they had a car available and uh, booked it, gave me the reservation number. And while I'm on the phone with that agent, while I'm on the phone, a local Atlanta number comes up on my phone. I answer it and it's that rental car company telling me that they could not give me a rental car. So we resorted, Janet and I, back to uh, plan B again, trying to find another rental car. None of the agencies in the airport had a car available, so I got somewhat smart. Once in a while, I have a good idea. I decided to surf the internet. On my phone, called up one of these companies, and it happened to be Avis Rent-A-Car, I don't mind saying it, 
and they had one car available. The only problem is the kind of a car that they had available. This is the car that they had for me. I want to show you a picture. (laughs) Brand new 2015 (laughs) convertible Camaro. That was the last car in all of Atlanta. We even checked places outside of the airport. How do I know it was the last car that was available? Because the guy behind me in the Avis line, when we were going to get that car with a confirmation number, I gave him the number that I called and said, here, you might have better luck here, standing right next to me. And he called and he said, no, they don't have any cars. So I know that we got the last car and that was it, leaving Atlanta to be here. Why would I want to be here today with you? Well, there's a passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that I think is pertinent and applicable in a situation such as this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. You know, Satan is a real being. He is alive and he's well, unfortunately. And he will do anything and everything he can to hinder you from taking your next steps in your walk with God. And I do believe that he was trying to hinder my family and, of course, me from being here today on this particular special day, the beginning of the National Week of Repentance, because you know what I know, what the devil knows. If we get serious about putting this book of books, the Bible, into action, he can do nothing but hightail it out of here, in your own life, in your family, in the church, and even in a nation. If God's people get serious about God's book and begin to put it into action and stop settling for stimulating gray matter and begin to really put it into action, you want to talk about a revolution? A second American revolution? I'm talking about a spiritual revolution. That's how it happens. When people like you, people like me, ordinary, regular people, take our extraordinary God at his word. Yes, the devil will try to hinder. There is no way unless God himself prevented us from coming back, that I would miss being here with each and every one of you on this significant day, which I believe is going to be a turning point in your life and in mine, in your family and in mine, in this church. And if you're listening by podcast, perhaps your church as well, if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a church leader. Now, let's get down to the business of the passage for today. Shall we? Luke chapter 19. Look with me in our Father's Word, Luke chapter 19. In the passage that was determined months ago, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, I love it when a plan comes together 
and it's obvious that man didn't have a whole lot to do with the plan. In this particular passage of Scripture, it just happens to fall where we are today in our series through the Gospel of Luke. It's not something that I cherry-picked just for today. It just happens to be where we're falling in the passage, and it's so appropriate for this national week of repentance. Here we are in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Of course, the context is Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey, a colt, and some have proclaimed him as Messiah and King, and others have rejected him. And Jesus is making his way to the, the culmination of his ministry, full well, knowing that he's going to be rejected by the leaders of Israel, knowing that he lived to die, to be crucified. And when he gets into the city, look at what happens here. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. One of two times in the scriptures where we see Jesus getting verklempt, becoming emotional, not just shedding a tear or two, but actually being overcome with emotion. See, men don't cry in public. That's not something that's honorable in our culture anyway, to see a grown man cry. Maybe we shed a tear you know, here or there, but we're afraid of losing our manhood. No, there's nothing more manly than being a man of God and letting your tears be seen before other people because the tears can oftentimes reflect the condition of the heart. Right. And we're getting a rare glimpse of insight here into the heart of Jesus Christ, the heart of Jesus as he's going toward Jerusalem, knowing what's before him, knowing what's happening right at that moment. It's one of two instances. The other time is when Jesus was raising Lazarus from the dead, and it says that Jesus wept. Here's the other instance. And he begins to weep. In his emotion, he says in verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Luke is giving us a glimpse into the ministry of Jesus. He's not being exhaustive, detailing everything because we could have book after book after book after book and still not exhaust everything. But here he's giving us insight that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he hightailed it over to the temple. And day after day, he taught the people from the scriptures and pointed people to himself. And his teaching is characterized in this particular way. The people were hanging on his every word. What it must have been like to actually see Jesus in the temple courts, to hear Jesus 
exposit the word of God, to teach and to preach with authority as the person he was and the person that he is. The people are soaking it up, at least some of them are. Did you see that in verse 47? He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Again, the contrast, the comparison between those who have hard hearts and have eyes that can't see and those who have eyes and soft hearts who can see and who are interested and hungry in the kingdom of God. They're interested in the message of salvation. And this is what we see happening here, that there are some who are interested in Jesus, but there are others who are not interested in Jesus. What it must have been like to hear the words of Jesus, to see him do his thing. I mean, to see a miracle take place, amazing. To see him cast out demons, amazing. But to see Jesus unroll a scroll from the Old Testament and to teach, that's a rabbi I'd like to listen to. That's somebody who I would like to hear teach and preach the word of God. And maybe you would be one of those people hanging on every word of Jesus. Maybe you'd be somebody mesmerized at the depth of insight coming out of Jesus' mouth, the practicality, the simplicity, and yet the profound truth and the profound application. You can put it in your pipe and smoke it. Everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus was teaching, pertinent for life then in the first century, pertinent and applicable for life now in the 21st century. Hmm. Notice in verse 45, the premeditated action of Jesus. This is Humility premeditated. You see, many of us have this idea, this understanding that humility is walking around with your tail between your legs and apologizing for people before you even come across them, never even wanting to make eye contact because that would be too bold, that would be too brazen. And we look down at the ground and we apologize for bumping into people. And being this inconvenience in their lives, that's not humility. That's somebody with a poor self-image. That's somebody who does not understand that they're created in the image of God. You know what humility is? Jesus models it for us right here. Because the system is broken. Here's the almighty son of God, God who became flesh, In their very midst, all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the Old Testament sacrifices are just foreshadowings, pointing toward the ultimate fulfillment that was now in their midst. Jesus of Nazareth, the spotless Lamb of God. Here he is in their midst and What are they concerned with? The spiritual leaders of the day, they're concerned with their system to the point of rejecting what the whole system is supposed to be pointing to, Jesus himself. How ironic, how tragic. Here's the one about whom all of the scriptures pointed. 
everything from Genesis right to the last word in the book of Malachi, all of it written about Jesus, pointing to Jesus. And here is the Messiah, Jesus, in their midst, and they don't get it. The spiritual leaders don't get it. They want to destroy Jesus. And Jesus, in humility, does what humility does. See, humility is walking in the truth. Humility is agreeing with God about what he already knows. And God the Father knew that the system was broken. And the most humble thing for Jesus to have done at that moment was to make a statement about the system, not to overlook, but to actually look at the system square in the eye. And that's when he fashioned cords. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. The other gospel accounts help us to get a very clear picture of it. He fashioned cords into a whip. This is somebody walking in humility seeing that the system is broken, seeing that he's the answer to the broken system. You see, what would have happened is people would have been traveling from all different parts of the world in that day to Jerusalem to participate in sacrifices, and they wouldn't necessarily have brought a sheep with them or a grain uh, offering of the size that they really needed or a dove or a pigeon, whatever the Old Testament requirement would have been. They wouldn't necessarily be traveling with that, but they would have some money. And they would go to the money changers and they would exchange that money for temple money, money that was used in the temple grounds, and then also for the sacrifice, whether it's grain or an animal of some sort. They would have exchanged it for that so that they could go to the priest then and then offer it. And what Jesus is doing here is again pointing to himself and helping them understand that the system is broken, that something's fundamentally flawed, fundamentally wrong. And then before we look down our noses at the people in that day and shake our heads and wag our finger, whatever we do with our fingers, we understand that 2,000 years have passed from the time of this initial occurrence where the nation of Israel is again rejecting Jesus. And we'll get to the emotional impact that this has on Jesus in just a moment. But here, here with absolute clarity, we are seeing Jesus make a statement about what is always wrong when the system is broken. They had allowed themselves to become satisfied with the ritual, the routine, the Old Testament law, fulfilling the Old Testament law. And so when the lawgiver shows up on the scene, they miss him. The more things change, the more things stay the same. You and I need to be absolutely careful that we don't do what they did. You see, we can go to church and be satisfied that we go to church. We can serve in a church ministry and be satisfied that we serve in that church ministry, take our identity in that church ministry, be a pastor, be a church leader, be a Sunday school leader, whatever the case might be. None of that makes us righteous before God. Not any of it. In fact, I don't think pastors have a special place in heaven other than being judged more strictly than those who aren't pastors. So, 
That's how you need to test and make sure if God has called you to be a pastor, you better make sure because James chapter three makes it very clear that a pastor teacher judged more strictly than others. But we're all, we're all going to be judged to the same standard, the same measuring rod. And that measuring rod is not a rod as much as it's God himself and Jesus. The people in Jesus' day had substituted a broken system, and yet they were not broken people. You know, it's possible to be part of a broken system and not to be broken individually. Brokenness is of tremendous value to God. Until you allow yourself to be broken, you can't follow Jesus. I don't know how that got divorced from the great news, the gospel. Jesus was broken continually. He's being broken again here in this particular passage. That's why he's being emotional at the rejection. He's facing rejection again, continually facing rejection, the ultimate rejection when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, even you, even you have forsaken me because that's the first time that Jesus was separated from his father. And he had to be. Because that's what sin does to you and to me. Death, spiritually speaking, is separation from God. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing the punishment that brought you and me peace. The punishment that's removed when we accept what Jesus did on the cross as the payment for what you deserve, for what I deserve, but yet we were helpless and hopeless because we have a sin problem that Jesus didn't have. That's why the Father accepted what Jesus did on the cross, and he doesn't accept our deeds apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There's got to be sinlessness. There's got to be perfection, and it's wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, if it's not sufficient for anybody in the Old Testament to follow the Old Testament law, if the Old Testament law was not going to make anybody justified, anybody righteous, then who are we to think that something that we add that's not in the Old Testament is going to be something that God looks at favorably? That the amount of hours we put in in service to the Lord or the amount of money we put into the offering basket or the offering plate or donate online as if God's going to look at that as making a payment. Listen, if the Old Testament sacrifices weren't enough that they only could point to Jesus Christ, if, if they're not good enough, then there's nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do. to change our standing with God and make us righteous before him. And what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking to the broken system and he's speaking then and he's speaking now. Be careful of going through the motions. Be careful of religious ritual that does not have at the epicenter the acknowledgement of Jesus, the Messiah, and the Savior, the King of Kings, God in the flesh. Because it is pointless, it is powerless, it is fruitless, and it brings 
the disciplinary hand of God. It's true then, and it's been true since the beginning of time. Read the Bible, all of it, and you will see that disobedience brings discipline. Disobedience brings difficulty. No one has ever surrendered to God and lived to regret it. No one has ever resisted God and come out a winner. It's a principle that we see again and again in the scriptures for individual lives, for families, for nations, that when God is resisted, he's a master at resisting back. Look with me at Luke chapter 19 here. Jesus is weeping, and then he utters this prophetic, predictive word against the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, the first coming of Jesus Christ, which was exclusively not to be glorified and honored and to take his place on David's throne to rule and to reign, and to rule over the whole earth, but specifically the first coming of Jesus Christ was to take care of business. On the East Coast, we might say business. Jesus came to take care of business, and the first order of business is that you've got a problem, and I've got a problem. In our mother's wombs, we had the problem. It's called sin. We've done things we shouldn't do. We've not done things we should do. We inherit sin as part of the human race. Sin came into the world through Adam. Righteousness came into the world through Jesus Christ and personal faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And what Jesus is doing here is making a prophecy, making a prediction about what was actually fulfilled decades later in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And look at the detail of what he says here. They will not leave one stone, in verse 44, upon another in you. And archaeologists and experts have been absolutely amazed when they began to excavate Jerusalem a few decades ago. Archaeologists were absolutely amazed at the destruction that took place, that actually stone after stone, they were not left. It wasn't just that the place was ransacked. It was absolutely obliterated. Every stone taken off the one underneath it till the ground was leveled. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's proclaiming judgment, the disciplinary hand of God when they could have had peace. They could have had peace. If only they had turned to him, if only they had embraced him, if only they had listened to him. And this is what we need to be listening to right now, the voice of Jesus. Because things haven't really changed. In that what God offers to you and what God offers to me is the very same thing, peace. Look at what he says here in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. That's a reference from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. This is what Jesus was wishing that they understood. 
that they didn't understand. Those with the eyes, the teachers, the leaders, the spiritual leaders didn't get it. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, what Jesus was offering to the people in coming and riding on a young donkey, he was offering them himself, the peace giver. There'll never be peace in the Middle East as long as Jesus is not acknowledged as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the peace giver that he alone is. Don't confuse the absence of conflict with the existence of peace. That's what we think is peace today. Well, as long as two people aren't at each other's throats, that's peace. That's not the peace that God offers with the lion laying down with the lamb. And what Jesus is doing here is exemplifying for us, revealing for you and for me the condition of his heart and his desire not for religious ritual, not for just observance of whatever it might be, even if it's outlined in the Old Testament, what Jesus is doing is he's weeping. He's becoming emotionally overwhelmed for one reason and one reason only. The people who he came to give his life for, the people that he came to give his life for, for the purpose of a close abiding relationship in return, we're rejecting him. Now, it doesn't seem to me that that's junk that Jesus would be interested in because you wouldn't cry over junk if you couldn't get the junk. You do have a tremendous value in the eyes of God. You have tremendous value in the sight of God. None of us is worthy of what Jesus did, uh, what Jesus gives us. None of us is worthy of that. I need to say it again because it needs to sink deep down into the DNA of who we are. None of us is worthy of the gift of Jesus Christ, but you are worth that priceless payment that was given through Jesus. And it's masterful here what Jesus does because the humble thing is to address the system being broken and he does that by fashioning the cords and overturning the tables of the money changers. The humble thing is to agree with God about what he already knows and Jesus is stepping in if he was to overlook at that particular point their rejection of him. Basically, he would have been condoning the broken system. And it's masterful at what he does. He says, the system is broken. I'm the Messiah. I'm your Savior. And you're interested and enamored with the broken system as if that's where your life is, as if that's where your hope is. And I'm telling you, because you're rejecting me, you're rejecting peace. You know, that's what happens when we reject Jesus Christ. You're not just rejecting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You're also rejecting Jesus in whatever area of our lives we are refusing to let him into. 
the best choice that you can make, that I can make, that we can make in our families and in our churches and in this nation is to open the gates wide and let Jesus in fully because until Jesus is in fully, he's not in at all. That's what it means to understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's something we all grow in. You might have just taken a quantum leap in your understanding of the lordship of Jesus right now when I just said that. You've understood Jesus as master of your life in this area, master of your life in that area, master of your life in all these other areas. But what is the area of your life where Jesus is not yet Lord? The sacrifice that we are making, the compromise that we are making, we are giving up the supernatural peace of God that surpasses understanding. We're giving that up. We're compromising. When Jesus himself is saying, oh, if you only knew the peace, I would come to you. No more war, no more difficulty. Listen, life is hard even when it's easy. Life outside of Eden is difficult, even when it's comfortable and convenient. The best way to experience the blessing of God, the fullness that God has for us in your own life, in your family, in the church, in a nation, is to welcome Jesus into every part of who we are, all the recesses of who we are top of our heads, bottom of the soles of our feet. And Jesus masterfully addresses the broken system while he demonstrates and reveals his heart for the people. I don't know how God does it. I just know that he does it, and you do too, because we're looking at this passage of Scripture. God is somehow able to love the individual, to be emotionally excited about you, to be desirous of a close and abiding relationship with you and at the same time separate the broken things in our life, the sins in our lives, and to deal with them candidly, to deal with them honestly. And this is what he's doing with the nation of Israel. He's weeping. He's becoming emotional because he is being rejected by those who should have embraced him. He's being rejected. And so he's weeping. And saying, you don't understand what you're doing, what you're forfeiting. It's inevitable. If you reject me, I have to discipline you. That's how much God loves you. That's why God will not let you continue in your sin. That's why God will not let me continue in my sin. It's the kindness of God, the patience of God that leads us to repentance, change of lifestyle, a change in our thinking, change in our behavior. See, it begins on the inside. And what we're getting in this passage of Scripture is a glimpse of Jesus' heart for the people. How serious his love is for the people. How much of a burning desire he had to be with his people, to walk with his people, and for his people to walk with him. And yet how much of a hatred and a contempt he had for the broken system, the substitute. How quickly we're willing to substitute a system for a relationship with God. And Jesus will have nothing to do with that. 
And so in one fell swoop, we see his heart, we see the tears. We hear the sobbing. Because in here, in Jesus, was a heart for the people to abide with him and to walk with him. And in here, in Jesus' heart, is a heart for you. The tendency of we human beings is we want to gravitate toward the broken system, keep ourselves busy with a smart device that dumbs us down, keep us busy doing all these kinds of activities that we think are important when God says, you know what? That's not important. I wept over this one issue. And the issue is loss of intimacy with you. You know, you are a person who is valued by God and desirable to spend time with. You might not realize that, but God wants to spend time with you. He created you in his likeness, created you in his image. When he was finished in the Garden of Eden, he didn't say, hey, that's a real surprise. Came out better than what I thought. Created male and female, and it is good. Created marriage between one man and one woman, it is good. Not like it's okay. Good means complete, perfect, flawless, without error. Didn't surprise God. There's not one thing that God created over that six days of creation in the book of Genesis that surprised him. Not one. And so doesn't it make sense that God would want to spend time with you? He created you. Doesn't it make sense that God would reach out and redeem you and purchase you? Say, you know what? I'll have that one. Doesn't it make sense? Isn't that just like God to want what is precious, to desire what is valuable? And what have we done as a nation? We've settled for simply church. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but many of our churches are broken systems. We've become content with going to church once a week or going to church multiple times a week as if that eases the or fills that God-shaped void inside each and every one of us. We placate ourselves by keeping busy doing this and busy doing that when really what we need is what God desires. He wants to be close with you. Do we understand that the cross didn't happen in a vacuum? The purpose of the cross was to fling wide the gate of fellowship between you and God. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. I was dead, separated from God in our trespasses and in our transgressions. We were separated from God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. The day you eat this, you will die. Adam lived 900 some years. Eve, hundreds of years. What's that mean? That day, they were separated from God and experienced spiritual death. That's what that means. That's how the Bible defines death, separation from God. The cross has its context and its purpose that you are 
valuable to God. You are worth spending time with. God made you in his likeness. God made you in his image. You might think, well, I was a mistake. Your parents might think that you were a mistake. Your parents might have talked down to you. They might still talk down to you. But you have a heavenly father who speaks the truth to you through his word, the Bible. And the truth is that I'm trying but failing in communicating is that you are worth a great deal to Almighty God. How much are you worth? This price, that God would send his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth son to pay a price that he didn't deserve to pay and to suffer separation from his father that you and I deserve eternally. That's why Jesus was weeping when the leaders of Jerusalem were rejecting him. They were rejecting everything that comes with Jesus. You want happiness in your life, don't you? Yes, of course you do, because God wired you to want to be happy. God put that desire within you, the architect, to seek happiness. It's we who seek happiness in the wrong places. We try to fill that void that can only be filled with God with broken systems. We allow ourselves to look at things we shouldn't look at. The grass is always greener. It's not, a, it's not greener, it's just a different type of grass. That's all it is. Still has insects. People get divorced and then get remarried thinking that it's going to solve their issues. No, you're just exchanging one set of problems in one marriage for another set of problems in another marriage. It was awfully tempting as I was driving that 2015 convertible Camaro. As I saw the glimmer of happiness in my eye in the rearview mirror with the top down, to think that I could be pretty happy with this car. If only I had this car. I bet you I could get a good deal on a used one of these. And you begin to justify all of this stuff. Happiness and peace come from a relationship that is right with your creator. You were wired for joy. I was wired for joy. Wired to seek peace, wired to look for happiness, joy, peace, and even comfort. We're wired to pursue comfort. The only difference is, listen, comfort is not found in things. There are a lot of people who have bought a lot of things and have a lot of gadgets. You don't have to be rich to have a lot of gadgets. You can be poor and have a lot of gadgets and try to find satisfaction and joy and contentment and fulfillment in something rather than God. And God's word to us is the same thing that it is to the people in this particular passage of scripture. It's amazing how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Jesus is offering to you and to me his very self to walk with him, to abide in him, to enjoy him, to know him, to love him, and to be loved. But we're the ones like the leaders of Israel who often will hold Jesus at arm's length or greater. This is why reading the scriptures are so important. Studying the scriptures for the course of your whole lifetime is so important that God would replace the faulty thinking that we typically embrace with truth about himself, truth 
about ourselves, truth about this world that we live in. And the truth is that there is no peace without the peace giver. All that you need in life, everything that you need in life is not wrapped up in a thing or the next big thing. It's wrapped up in a person and his name is Jesus. And I know you have the same tendency that I have. I have the same tendency that you have. We tend to forget how God is in the business of doing a deep, deep work. And it is the deep work that is the necessary work to take us deeper in God's work. It is the deep work that is the necessary work to take us deeper in God's work. God is in the business of doing deep work in each of our lives, which at times is painful. Oh, if the leaders of Israel were listening to Jesus when he fashioned the cords and overturned the tables of the money changers, they might have had a spiritual awakening right there, might have had a revival in Jerusalem. But they weren't paying attention because they didn't want to hear what they needed to hear. And what do I mean by that? That the hard work leads to a deeper work and going deeper with God and further with God and higher with God. In my hand, I have a nickel, just a regular nickel. This one is from 2014, Minton in Delaware. Thomas Jefferson's head is on this nickel. And I'm holding it up for you to see because this nickel is about the size of the boil from hell that was on my leg beginning two weeks ago. I went to see my doctor. It appeared out of nowhere, and the thing got worse on a Monday. I went to see my doctor, and he said, take these antibiotics. If it gets worse, go to the emergency room. And you know what? I was in the emergency room, not just once, but twice on two consecutive nights. I drew a circle with a pen around the red inflamed area with that thing. My doctor said, it's the only time you can use a pen to write on yourself. And so I drew that mark around my leg, and Wednesday morning, it looked good. It it had shrunk, but then... Wednesday afternoon when I looked again, because it hurt, felt like somebody was putting a hot cigarette onto my leg and extinguishing it, but it wouldn't go out. I realized that the, the wound had grown larger. And so I went to the emergency room. And when I went to the emergency room, after I waited for two and a half hours to be admitted, they brought out to me the bad news delivered by somebody I was not happy to see. The devil himself could walk in, no problem. Pull out a needle, I will weep. (laughs) They're going to take that needle and stick it into about five spots. But the doctor's not going to do it. The intern is going to do it. (laughs) And then the intern is going to take a scalpel and he's going to slice that thing open very gingerly because apparently he hadn't done this before on a live person. And then they're going to squeeze this thing after the numbing agent, which totally doesn't work when you have that type of a wound because your body tries to shut everything off and case everything away from it, including the numbing agent. So why are you giving me these needles? And they're going to squeeze this thing to get what's out, what's inside out, to get all of that gooey richness out of the infection. And then they're going to take something that looks like a shoelace and they're going to insert it as a wicking agent into the wound so that it heals properly from the inside out. Then they're going to send me home. The next day, 
after that ordeal, I removed the bandage and the wicking had been out for a long time. It was already dry and crusted. It didn't do its job and the wound was larger. So I had to go back to the emergency room. This time they offered me a real doctor, a fully licensed real doctor who did the same thing as the first doctor, better, took a big long needle, stuck it into my leg in five different spots, and then very skillfully, because he had surgery experience, sliced that thing open about three quarters of an inch long, and then took a forceps, which looks like a glorified pliers, needle nose pliers, and stuck it into that wound and opened it up and moved it around to break up everything that was inside about three quarters of an inch deep. While I kind of watched this, and my wife took video, and then he squeezed it as this thing that looked like it was from the movie Alien came out of this thing. And then he took some packing some gauze and the recommendation was stay on the antibiotics and then on Sunday pull out the gauze I said like you know what I'm not doing that (laughs) and so when my wife nurse Janet and my son went to the doctor on Monday and had the doctor take it out. My son was laughing, saying, Dad, does it really hurt that much? And I almost wanted to discipline my son right there for something he was innocent of doing. And I asked the doctor the second time I was in the emergency room, hey, what what would happen if I didn't come in here? What, what, What would happen to this thing? Well, it would get worse. Well, suppose I just took antibiotic. Well, you can't just take antibiotic. You have to go in there and you have to clean that thing out because the antibiotics can't get to it. Well, suppose I was in a distant land. Well, then what would have happened is it would have gotten worse and worse. It could have morphed into that flesh-eating bacteria. Then we would have had to do a little bit more than slice your skin when it had to take off your leg, which totally convinced me, go ahead, slice all you want. (laughs) See, I learned something about wounds from both of those trips to the hospital, which I don't think are coincidental just before the National Week of Repentance. See, I don't think it's coincidental that I almost did not make it here today to be with you on the kickoff of the National Week of Repentance. I don't think any of that is a coincidence. I think that We, all of us who want to walk with God, are going to be vehemently opposed. You know this Jesus thing? You get serious about anything in life you want to get serious about, but just don't get serious about this Jesus stuff. Because when you get serious about Jesus, when you get serious about Jesus disinfecting a wound and going in there and performing surgery where it needs to take place, that's when your life's really going to change. See, I could have put a Band-Aid on that. I could have taken more antibiotic, more antibiotic, more antibiotic. But what had to happen is somebody had to slice that thing open and go in there and get the infection out. And even though it's painful to go through that, it would have been much more painful to ignore that preliminary treatment. 
And that's what happens in, with sin in your life and in mine. It's painful to sit down and have a heart-to-heart discussion with your spouse about these cyclical issues that you face again and again. But you better do it because all things left alone get worse. It's difficult to face your own sin or have God face your own sin. It's painful to take a candid look as we're all going to be doing this week with the action guide from revivalmatters.com and asking God to probe and search and to disinfect and to clean out what needs to be cleaned out. Because the alternative is, if we allow what we know needs to be changed, if we do not allow God to come in and clean what needs to be cleaned, then we are in danger of experiencing the fulfillment of this particular passage of Scripture in James chapter 1, verse 15. And sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. At the end of the day, it really is a simple choice for you and for me. Repentance is good for the soul. Letting God look at the areas of our lives where typically we just want to put a Band-Aid on them is one of the best, most meaningful, powerful things that you can do in your life as a follower, as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why we need more than a day to allow God to search our hearts, to allow him to probe us. Sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.